out of the way. Way out of the way. I can stand. I can sit. The doctor has even given me permission to lift over 10 pounds. To, to take out the trash, as my wife would say. But I had to say, I, I relished in taking out the trash, and I relished in bringing in the groceries last night. I looked extremely masculine and macho. Bags in each hand. I grunted a little bit just to... Of course, Melinda can carry the same bags in and not grunt. <clears throat> Danny, uh, we're going to um, continue in our witness protection uh, program series. This will be the fifth part of this series. And, and where this actually began is the idea that we are a new creation uh, that God has created. He's made us new. But sometimes we don't feel new, do we? Sometimes we, 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 we connect powerfully with the old person. And, and like uh, the idea of the witness protection program, uh, God deals with our past crimes and um, we, have to, we have a new testimony. We testify to something new. And the individual, you or I, receive a new identity and that's true with Christ as well. We are his son, his daughter. We are joint heirs to the throne with Jesus and then this individual is relocated, and we're not necessarily geographically relocated, but we are out of one kingdom and into another, all right? But there are rules that make this work, all right? We, since we're out of this environment, this reality, this identity, we have a new identity that we step into, which isn't always easy. So we leave our old life of crime we leave our old acquaintances, we leave our ways of thinking, we embrace new ways of living, new allegiances, new friendships, we embrace this new identity. What the government calls it is nothing familiar. You can never go back. What the government says, though, is that most do. Most go back. They have never lost a witness they were protecting who did not go back. Why do we go back? It's because this new life is very foreign to us. Very, very foreign. The core influences that operate in us as we are working into this new life is what we have really been focusing on. And that's our mind must become new. Our activities, our job, school, our circle of friends and how we invest. And that first one we talked about was that circle of friends, that circle of coworkers, those people that are relations in our life, and they matter. Our relational environment matters, and it will affect who we are. The Scripture tells us that. Our mind matters. Our thoughts, our attitudes will have to become different and new because if the mind doesn't change, you will never be in that new life. And the scripture says that how we are conformed to a different pattern than the world is by our mind being made new. Our attitudes, which are the way, uh, ways that our feelings and those things actually change our behaviors, those attitudes will be critical that they are new. And then the scripture reminds us that God uh, provides power and love and this all-important self-discipline, the peace that you and I bring to the table when our mind and our activities and our circle of friends are all changing to something new because we can opt out at any time. Our activities, what we choose to engage in, our discretionary time, is it going towards the old life? Is it feeding and nurturing the new life? Or is it kind of neutral and it's not feeding any life at all? And then finally, God gives us some exercises, very practical ones, on what to focus your time on, what to focus your mind on, rather. He says to search for those things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely 
admirable, those things of excellence, those things that are praiseworthy. Sink your mind into those things. Search for them. Look for them. Are you a skeptic? Are you a critic? Are you judgmental? Are you arrogant? Are you greedy? Do you see the dark side of everything? Are you glass, half-empty kind of person? God says, that will never do in your new life. Because in order to see what he sees and goes where he goes, you must be able to recognize noble. You must be able to call it out of people, see it in people. You must be able to pull out what's not completely evident because your eyes began to see differently. Remember, he sees those things in you and I. And he minds them from you and I. You see, that's the role that we are being called to. You can't do the work of God if you don't have the mind of God. Our mind, he says, focus on these things of power and excellence. And then he goes one step further and says, now put them into practice. I found that very difficult this week. My sermon was haunting me. I, I um, had uh, some setbacks on things that were supposed to be delivered. Nothing was going right in my day. Uh, I was going to pick up this particular piece of wood. They gave me the wrong thing. I had to go back, put it back. It took forever to take it back. I went to another place. They tried to give me the wrong piece of wood, and I left there, and I went to another place. I'm thinking it's taking two hours to get wood, and I'm beginning to feel this, where is the excellence and this, you know, where is nobility and how do I focus my mind here without really just mentally going off on all these people who are incompetent? You hear that? You hear how I did that? See, that will never do, will it? You have to stop those things right there. And then I went and I rented a power washer and I took it all the way to the house in Angleton and it did not work. And I was desperately looking for what was noble and what was pure and what was of excellence because it was not the power washer. And I called their customer service And they didn't seem of excellence either. And it became clear that I was going to take it back and get another one. And I began to see what God has to deal with every day with me. Every day he fights to find my excellence and draw it out. Every day he looks for nobility and he minds those things in each of us. He is powerfully committed to this process where he uses these things to pursue humanity. Then we looked at investing. We are investors. You invest. Investing is about value. And what we see is that God's witness protection program is about restoring real value and real life. Because value in God's economy is real life. That's where the value is. I'm just going to mention these headlines from last week because they really bring us into our conversation of today. Here's some key points that we gave you scripture on last week. The nature of today, the nature of this world is not life. Do not be fooled. It is not life. Those who satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death of the sinful nature. Those who live to please the Spirit will harvest an everlasting life. God also reveals, number two, God reveals the value is in the life. The harvester is paid good wages, and the fruit of their harvest is people brought to eternity. That's the life. When we lose that edge, you lose it all. Then you're just wandering in what the world provides. The other truth, the third one, the life in this world will not produce life. No matter what you do with the extravagance of life that it can be here, it will not produce real life. 
In Jesus' ministry, people often grabbed the wrong value from Jesus. They often grabbed what he could do for them and not what he presented to them. We easily do the same thing. And the last one I want to mention is the troubles of this world are not an indicator of value. If your life is full of troubles, that is not a direct indicator of whether your life is producing value. We connected all these together and we looked at this chart that the thoughts come in. Whether they're good thoughts or bad thoughts, there they are. They come in and visit us. And whether we leave them there is whether they will be processed. And if you process thoughts, good thoughts, bad thoughts, indecent thoughts, whatever they are, they will produce activities and they will produce attitudes every time. That's what processing does. It comes out the other side. And so God has given us this guard You have the power, the discipline, and the ability to cast off thoughts. The scripture says to take every thought captive. Quarantine it. Does it go further? Does it get out? It's your self-discipline, your call. The conclusion was the old life is being deconstructed. And the new life is being nurtured and empowered. It brings us to today where we're talking about job and school. I did not plan to hit on graduation celebration, but it seems to have done that. Job and school. I find it interesting. They are so downplayed in the life of God's people. They are looked at as a staple very often. Uh, Something that goes on and something we work around. But I want to challenge that a little bit today. I want us to think differently about something that takes up at least a third of your life. At least a full third of your life is not incidental to your identity and who you are. If we are not deliberate and careful about how we look at our job, our career, our school, if we are not deliberate, then it will produce what it produces in each of us. We're very different. Some of us are entrepreneurs, risk takers, for better or for worse. Some of us are a little more conservative, even timid. Some fearful, for better or for worse. But we all have a place, we all have a value in the economy of God's system. Uh, We did a test for our leaders years ago, and you have this spectrum. And on this side, we called it maintenance. These are people that are very satisfied with a string of duties that make everything work all right. Change the oil every 3,000 miles. Buy the toilet paper on Tuesday every week. You know... We have these routines, everything flows well. Some of us do really good with routines. We like them. We, we don't like change that much. Others of us, on the far side of the spectrum, it's kind of pioneers. We're really reckless with, with routines. We get bored with them and sloppy, and we get in trouble. And then you have people in between. And we need both sides. You know who you are, don't you? I see people kind of looking at one another. That's you. You don't do routines at all. You're terrible. Yeah, but you're the... And and so the truth is, God created you in these sorts of ways. I want us to look at how these things play in our life. Consumes a large block. Work and jobs... School, they also create circles of influence in your life, ones that you can't necessarily control. You might have a work environment that is difficult. You might have a school environment that is difficult, full of bullies, full of drug gangs. It might be full of whatever it is. But sometimes we have limited ability to address those things. Your work or your job should produce value for you and others. That's a scriptural component. 
and in the United States and some other countries. But this is not something that you can take to, many, to a lot of places outside of a specific few countries. School and work can provide freedom in your direction. There are many countries where you have no freedom in your direction. There are many countries where surviving is the name of the game. We often look at jobs and careers very much from a, a Western perspective, but it is not true everywhere. It won't always be true for you, very possibly. What does education do for you? Here's what it does. Here's why some kids don't get it, like myself. It produces discipline if you let it. It will produce discipline in you. It will produce some level of organization. If you're disorganized and you're over the age of 15, you've probably already realized it is helpful to have some ability to force yourself to organize. Following instructions. To learn what you're required to learn. To be on time. To show up. To listen. Those are some basic fundamentals that school has a powerful ability to produce in you. Now, you notice... I mean, other than that one on learn what you're required to learn, I didn't mention algebra or world history or any of those things. Because what you come out with, you're learning knowledge, base knowledge along the way. But school provides, when somebody looks, you're an A student, they know this. They know that you have enough of discipline, enough organization, enough ability to show up. You have enough of those things that you can excel in gaining knowledge. Knowledge is the nugget. When I was in high school, my question was, why do I need that? Really? I mean, in life, how many times will I really desperately need to know in the sentence which word is the determiner? Or what is past participle? Who can spell that? And should we like them? That's how I thought. But I missed the point. If they want you to learn that day what a determiner is or a past participle, learn it. Just learn it. It's not really something at 14 or 13 that I must demand a logical and legitimate answer to its value for my entire life. Maybe my greater role would be learn it. I had to get to college to figure that out. Some of you way ahead of me. If you come out of high school with a D average, like some have done, what people can look at very quickly is no, I'm suspicious of his ability to follow orders, follow directions, turn anything in, learn something, complete something, show up. I'm suspicious. And that would have been wise because I was terrible at showing up. I was good at lots of things, but showing up at school just was not one of them. Coming out of school into life's journey, getting into things like jobs and careers, there's this basic pattern that we're taught. Our, our, our basic school, higher education, career, make money, job security, provide a good life. That means get some toys that you want, you know, kind of hang with your buddies who are getting the fifth wheel or those kinds of things. Help your kids, retire have money to retire, die and leave what's left over to others. Heck, that's the American dream. Sounds a little anticlimactic on the end, doesn't it? 
That's where we embrace statements like, well, you know, I, I'd like to leave things for my kids, and I'd like for them to have something better than I did. And, and God might say, so really, uh, I can't take care of your kids? The American dream is not the God dream. This is a life many parts of the world would dream of. But it's not the God dream. In our schools and our jobs, because it's such a big block of our time, we do find friendships. We find our identity. We find this belonging, or we try to, we want to. We gain personal value. I begin to be affirmed by things I do well. I find personal value in that. I begin to build my identity out of that. And all the time, God says, you already have an identity. It's the one I gave you. Just because you're good at it doesn't mean that becomes you or you become that. And the tension grows. And ultimately, our purpose is somehow rooted in our job. Somehow those get intertwined in a way that we can lose our way. I want to bring up a very current name if you've watched any sports at all. Here's a guy named Chris Borland. I think he's 24 years old. Uh, Played for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, He's a little guy, actually, for an inside linebacker. I think he's 5'11 and... 205, something like that. Not a very big guy. He ranks one of the slowest guys in the NFL. And he has, I believe, left with the highest tackle rate. The guy is a machine. You know, they, they, they say he's got the gift. He just knows. One guy said, supernaturally, he knows where the ball is. So he's always attacking. He played for Wisconsin Wolverines. He was highly drafted. And he actually replaced a very, very high-profile player on the 49ers and did super well. The little slow guy. A multi-million dollar man. But several weeks ago, Borland retired after his first year in the NFL. I listened to an interview of Chris Borland. You have to understand, his passion was football. His passion was always football. Going through high school, his parents would not let him play football. They let him play baseball and basketball, but what he wanted to play is football. And finally, his parents relented. And he played football, but he was the 155-pound slow guy. So he began to bulk up and work out, and his big brother helped him. And every day, he pushed the weights. Every day. And one day, he wanted to go play a pickup game instead of push the weights. And his brother said, that's fine, go do that. Just, I want you to know, never again ask me to help you. He said, let's push weights. You hear that discipline, that passion? He took his high school by a storm. He went to Wisconsin, was was a highly ranked, a powerful player. It was his passion. It was his dream. He said there is, he loved the violence of the game. He loved the hits. He loved the adrenaline rush of the game, his dream. Why would he quit after one year? Borland quit because he said, there is more to my life than football. 
And he started doing a lot of research on concussions and the effects of concussions long term. He said, I already forget where I put my keys. I don't need to add concussions to forget everything else. My life is more than football. It's my passion, but it's not the only passion. And it's not the only reason I exist. Do you hear that? You know how many people could not do that? They couldn't do it. And I heard interview after interview, football players say, I admire him, but there's no way I could do it. As long as my body will hold up, I'm going to play. Because I love the sport. It's good to have passions. God has given us passions. What passions ultimately decide how your life is done? I love Borland's quote. Do what you're passionate about. Play at a high level. But never forget. It's what you do, not who you are. He was a young man that did not let his passion re-identify him. I don't know what he will do with his life. He gave three quarters of his signing bonus back. And he gave all the contract money back. Anything he didn't play, he sent it back. It introduces a competing economy. And the reason I bring these up is there are some statements that you hear. Follow your dreams. Learn what your passion is and go do your passion. I, I think those statements can have great value. But do you know some people don't have dreams and passions? They don't. Do you know that some people's dreams and passions cannot be achieved any longer? I had a dream and a passion to fly commercially for a living. And I did that for a couple of years. Not for the big airlines like I wanted to. I'm so grateful that my passion did not override God's passion for my life. It would have been a terrible regret for me to fly airplanes instead of pursue people. It would have been a terrible regret for me. We walk in competing economies, folks, in this world, with our careers, our jobs, unless you're like a pilot or a musician, that you're going to do it for, you know, pennies. At some level, we want the money. We need the money. It's our plan for the future. Make enough to have possessions and appear and feel successful enough. And people travel the world. Most people I know want to travel the world in some way. God's economy says it differently. He says, don't focus on building wealth. How if, you, if you went to a career seminar and they said, we want you to take this into account, one of the most serious things we tell you today, we do not want you to focus on building wealth. Most people would go, really? Where can he possibly go from here? What can this person sell me? He says, your career is with me. Doesn't mean you won't play for the NFL. Doesn't mean you won't fly for an airline. Doesn't mean you won't do things like Bill Gates. What it means is, I will be the one who puts you in places that I have designed. Do you trust me? That's what he's saying about your life. 
Many times we will trust him with our life, but not our job and our career. Passion and rewards are rooted in me. Can you hear that? Passion and rewards. He says, they are rooted in me. They're not rooted in money. They're not rooted in fame. They're rooted in me and me alone. And he says, people will be your inheritance. We put a lot of demand on careers when we want our passion to be fulfilled in our career. I have this, um, this diagram here. It's, it's just uh, five circles. And, and the whole idea is if I'm passionate about what I do, then I will like doing it. It won't be like work. And I will make money, be successful, and I will be satisfied with that. And there will be a social piece that will come together for me. I will be able to make a living. I will have my value and my identity and my passion. I will have security in my passion. All of these things by following the thing that I love the most. I remember when I was flight instructing, uh, you don't make a lot of money as a flight instructor. It sounds a little more glamorous than it is. Actually, it sounds a lot more glamorous than it is. But we decided, uh, since we work six and a half days a week at the airport, we taught nothing but airplanes and aviation regulations and props and engines. And, I mean, it was really sick uh, for most people come in. They go, I want out of here. So uh, we decided that we had no social life, we had no money. What we would do is we would create a social environment and we would not talk about aviation at all. We would not talk about the job, where we work. And so we all met at a friend's house who was a flight instructor and we made barbecue and hamburgers and um, it was the most awkward hour of our lives. It was silent. We couldn't think of anything to say. And it's like we're just smiling and looking around, and we start laughing because no one could think of anything to say. And then somebody finally spoke up and said, why don't we talk about flying? And everybody said, oh, you know, and everybody jumped in, and the, and the night was wonderful. But it troubled me. I was living my passion. I just didn't think that that was what I was created to do. That was not my legacy in play, and I felt it. I felt something was wrong. I want to invite someone up, just a little bit of an interview. Um, that's going to be yours. This is Sherry. She's a little, a little bit shy probably, yeah. but she's, I got permission to do this. I'm going to do a little bit of an interview here. Um, so, um, Sherry, did you, uh, graduate high school? No. No. Um, and so did you get your GED? Yes. Okay. How old were you when you got that, roughly? 17. 17, okay. And so did you go to college? Yes. You did. When did you decide to go to college? Probably when I quit high school. Good. And when did you actually start going to college? When I was 17. When you were 17? Mm -hmm. All right. And uh, in high school, I, I, how were your grades in high school? I didn't go to school. I don't even know how I got past my freshman year because I literally didn't go to school. Okay. Common bond here. 
Um, so you wanted to go to high to college, and um, so how did you do in college? Really good. How good is really good? I graduated with high honors in my bachelor's. Graduated with high honors in your bachelor's. Um, so you became focused, you yeah. mo motivated. Yeah. Did you have to make sacrifices to do that? Yes. Did you have to learn discipline to do that? 100%. 100%. Did you have to give up things? Yeah. Was it worth it? Yes, 100%. <laughs> Did you find you were growing up Yeah. in that process? Oh, yeah, for sure. So tell me, where do you see your life going? Well, wherever Jesus takes me. That's a great answer, isn't it? Here's the thing. That, she didn't just say that for me. Uh, this is my stepdaughter. She would not say that for anybody if it wasn't true. Uh, so wherever Jesus takes you. Mm -hmm. Do you have a job? Yes. What do you do? I teach at an urban alternative school in Houston. Do you like it? Yes. Why? Because I feel like I'm doing something good with my life, and I know that I'm helping people do something good with their lives. So do you think that's what Jesus has you doing right now? Yeah, completely. He got me this job. There's no way. All right. But do you think you'll always be in that, or might Jesus take you in a different direction? Uh, I don't think I'll always be doing this. No. Yeah, I think I'll go in. So what is maybe something else that Jesus has put in your heart? Um, I'm really passionate about loving others, particularly um, in the Middle East and Palestine in particular. And you think God might do something with that? in the future sometime? Yeah, because it's how I learned to love Jesus was through that passion, so I'm sure that there's more to come. Very good, thank you. Welcome. Yeah. I wish I could answer like that when I was her age. When I was her age, I was a flight instructor and couldn't talk about anything but Fowler flaps or something. Do you hear that? Now, She's passionate about what she does. But what she wants to do is follow Jesus. She's good at what she does. But she wants to follow Jesus. And that might take her to Palestine or the Middle East. Because she has a really deep, devoted love for them. You see, we can be passionate about things and still follow Jesus. We can be in a job that's powerful and career-oriented, but still be open to where Jesus takes us. I want to get a few scriptures together for us. It gives us advice on this concept of job or career. Remember, it's at least a third of your life. It will mold you. It will mold you. The question is, how will you let it mold you? Our first point is, go to work. Get a job. If you don't have a job, get one. The scripture says, so you can be generous. You notice it doesn't say, so you can have a retirement, so you can be successful, so you can get those twin sea dues for you and your buddy. It says, so you can be generous. Do you hear the difference on how God thinks on job and career? He's more interested in you learning generosity. Now, keep in mind, remember the things we learned in school or we were supposed to? God has you in school right now. When we are 
any job, anything we're doing, our school, God is working on your laziness. He's working on your patience. He is working on your insecurities. For some of you, he's working on your pride and your arrogance. He's building humility in some of us. He's showing us how forgiveness works. He deals with this issue of resentment that you keep struggling with. Oh, yes, he does all this on your job, in your school. He will conveniently allow someone that is so easy for you to resent to be right there in your life for the sole purpose of helping you be transformed in that place. A month ago, you didn't even know you could be resentful. Now you are full of it, and God says, you're welcome. Let's go to work. He works on our tolerance. He will expose our prejudice. And you will be of benefit to whoever you work for. He will build trust in him. Go to work. Ephesians 4, 28. Anyone who has been stealing, stop it. If you're the drug dealer in your block, stop it. There are other things that you may need to stop as far as how you make money, but you must work. Do something useful with your own hands that you may have something to share with those in need. Advice point number two, we were created with a purpose. We have a job. We have a career already laid out for us. That purpose, that career, that is the thing that is important. How it's packaged, where God has you today is not critical. For the long-term picture, Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Our, our next point, the Lord's work is the only work that does not represent a temporary value. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. I did a funeral several years ago for a very successful man. He was uh, one who... Did not acknowledge Jesus. His, his kids asked me to do the funeral. Now, did he have some last second conversion? I don't know. What I know is that at the end of his life, from what his kids said, who knew he came up short. He was a successful professional. He amassed land, real estate, and money. He had kids. He had houses. But his life was at the end. And he had this stuff. And he had kids that didn't really like him. He knew he had missed his mark. Invest in eternal things today. Next point, the job is not always easy or rewarding in the moment. Sometimes it's difficult in the moment. 1 Corinthians I think it's 5, 11 through 13. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. 
We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Now, you have to appreciate this. Paul is not saying this as a victim. What he's demonstrating is, remember that noble and that excellence and pure and of good report? What he's saying is, we are in the fire and we are hitting the ball over and over and over again. We are investing in eternity when it's difficult. We are hungry. We are beaten. We are in injustice all around us. And that is not capturing us. We remain in the new life. We remain in the place of God's witness protection program. And when you're there, your witness shines. What he says is not that we were, we were rugs that people were wiping their feet on. He says, we were lighting up the darkness. Our work, we worked hard at our purpose and our identity right there. We worked hard. What we were producing was eternal. It is not a place of victims. Our next point. Often we might find ourselves working against the plan of the Lord. If we pursue a career, a successful path, the question is, is that what the Lord is doing? Is it what he's doing? Borland didn't think so. Patrick Willis, the man who, who retired before him at 30 years old, who was pro bowler seven years in a row, he didn't think it was what the Lord was doing for him to stay in and play. People were grieving and wishing he would come back and play. He said, let me make it clear to you. When I signed on with the San Francisco 49ers, it was one of the happiest days of my life. My dream, my passion had come true. He said, this day is happier than that day. You hear the power in that? Does your passion own you? Does your need for your passion to feed your adrenaline, to feed your rush, does it own you? Or do you own your passion? Colossians 3, 22 through 25. We see how it trains us. There's some very powerful words here. This is in the message. Servants, do what you're told by earthly masters. Well, that rubs us wrong right there. Don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master, for God. Confident that you will get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who, doesn't sh who, who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. In those places of injustice, if you want to see it firsthand, Look in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Look in those places where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, look at these people and see they were slaves in a foreign land to a foreign king, and they served them with all their might because God put them there. 
God used him there. Your job is not the holy grail of your life. It's not the pinnacle of your life. So here's some questions for you. Wait a minute. Are we ready with that? Or is it, it's after this, isn't it? Okay. Does it define you? Does your job consume you? Are you spent? No time, no energy, nothing residual. Is money short? Is it a source of spiritual life or does it consume your spiritual life? There are those of us who need to go get a job. We need to pay our bills. Here's what I tell people who don't make enough to pay their bills. You need to get a different job. You need a better job. Or you need a second job. And if you have to work at a job that you can't stand, then you need to work at that job. You need to do the work. If you're at McDonald's, you need to work with all your might at McDonald's. Be faithful in the small things. Show excellence wherever you are. If you're working minimum wage with people who are half your age, do it with all your might. If that is the road forward, that's the road forward. If you need two of those, then you have to get two of those jobs. And along the way, you ask God, I am faithful with the small things. Would you give me something bigger? I'll be faithful with the little things. For many of us, we want to wait till that big thing comes along. Then we will be faithful. And God will say, why don't we be faithful right now? I want us to see something. This is a, um, a video that I saw actually a week or two ago. The subject of our final story was born when Woodrow Wilson was in the White House. Fourteen presidents later, when Bill Clinton was in office, she decided it was time to get a job. And a whole lot of kids are glad she did. Steve Hartman met her on the road. They say you're never too old to learn. But here at the Sundance Grade School in North Plainfield, New Jersey, they're proving you're never too old to teach either. See my two legs? Yes. They still move. They sure do. That's home economics teacher Agnes Zalesnik. But the kids just call her Granny. It's a nickname she comes by honestly. As the oldest living teacher in America. Now you're all set. She turns 100 on Sunday. Do you know how old that is? Very, 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 very old. I know people can get very old like that, but I wouldn't think that Granny would do it, <laughs> even without a wheelchair. Without a wheelchair, or any chair for that matter, Fill the bottom up. Agnes puts in a full day's teaching five days a week. This is a good jolly. She hasn't burned out on the job, partly because she hasn't been doing it that long. Yeah. She was a homemaker most of her life. My husband didn't approve of working, so... He didn't want you to work? <laughs> he wanted me to watch the, the children. So she did. Then she watched the grandchildren. Then she played a lot of bridge. But that got old, and she still felt young. So Agnes started working here at the age of 81. Today, she's so devoted to these kids. She hasn't even called in six since she was 98. Pincushion. I just think she loves the children. She puts the love into her cooking. Can you taste this love? No, you can't taste love, but you can feel love. I see. And all the children love her because she's so nice, so compassionate, so she perseveres a lot. For those reasons and a hundred more, today the kids threw her a huge birthday party. Not a retirement party, mind you. She'll be back on Monday and hopes to keep working for years to come. What else is there in life? 
Children make the whole world. Or at the very least. Let's get some more hugs. Make your day. Steve Hartman, On the Road, in North Plainfield, New Jersey. And that's the CBS Evening News for tonight. For all of us at CBS News all around the world, I'm Scott Pelley. I'll see you Sunday. We can get a job. She's 82, 81 when she went to work. I wanted to show you this. Do you know that the statistics say that the average American goes through seven careers in their lifetime? There's really not a lot of security in a lot of careers anymore. God will make a way for you to have a living. He will make a way for your life. Doesn't mean your lifestyle will be what you want. Doesn't mean you're going to have everything you want. It means that you're going to have a good life. But the big thing is, it means that you're going to be open and available to his purpose. And you never know what he'll have you doing at 81 years old or at 100 years old. Rules to work by. Passion and purpose. I, I want to, we'll back, I got one more video we're going to close with. I'll tell you what, let's show that video now. This is another small video. Every time 71-year-old Andy Mackey draws a breath, it's music to his ears, whether there's a harmonica there or not. He's just glad to be alive. How are you still sitting here? I guess they don't need a harmonica player in heaven yet. <laughs> Andy Mackey, a Scottish-born retired horse trainer, lives in this camper in northwest Washington state. Lives here even though technically, medically, he should have died long ago. After his ninth heart surgery, Andy's doctors had him on 15 different medicines, but the side effects made life miserable. Uh. So one day, he quit taking all 15 and decided to spend his final days doing something he always wanted to do. Go out, 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 in, in, out. Andy used the money he would have spent on the prescriptions to give away 300 harmonicas with lessons. Very good. And when he didn't die the next month, he bought a few hundred more. I just started going from school to school. It's now 11 years and 16,000 harmonicas later. He taught us a lot. He's very nice. Everybody likes him. Everybody. To keep the kids interested in music as they get older, Andy now spends the bulk of his social security check making what he calls strum sticks. He's given away thousands of these too. He also buys store-made instruments for kids who show a special interest and provides free lessons to everyone Declan, give me an e. by getting the older kids to teach the younger kids. Yeah, he's getting the hang of it. I tell him music is a gift. You give it away. You give it away and you get to keep it forever. The end result is something truly unique to this corner of America. Seems everywhere you look, every place you go, every kid you meet has that same genuine passion for fiddle music. I can't explain the joy. I don't think Bill Gates feels any richer inside than I do. Do you think you're still living today because of the kids and the music? I, I really believe that. After that story first aired, one of our viewers gave Andy a $5,000 donation. Andy used the money to hire a part-time teacher who's now showing the kids how to make the strumsticks. The hope is they'll carry on the mission even after Andy's gone. If Andy's ever gone. Just since we met him, he's survived several more heart attacks and last week had his 10th successful heart surgery. Steve Hartman, CBS News, Chimicum, Washington. The reason these are important is they're out of the box. And, and I want you to understand, God is an out-of-the-box God. 
You're not trapped in poverty. You're not trapped in your job. You're not trapped in unemployment. Jesus set you free. And he is the road forward. And he can connect your purpose and your passion that he gave you before you were born. With your life that you live today, you would stand.